It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get moving with Maria. Inspiration to spend a few minutes each day to get moving on the small things that can make a big difference in your life. Today on Let's Get Moving, I am speaking with licensed clinical social worker Orly Bills about seasonal depression. Does depression get worse when the, it's less light outside and when the holidays are coming? What are your thoughts? Great question. So I think depression is a uh, year-round phenomenon. It's always there. I just think the holidays are a time where it gets magnified because there's a, a shift in um, the environment, in the culture, in uh, um, the environment. So the temperature, right, gets colder, it gets darker. It's dark when we go to work. It's dark when we get home. Um, all of those things, I think, factor into magnifying depression around this time of year. So and then we add stress on top of that. Yeah. Yeah, whether it's um, this type of this time of year, especially brings out things around like financial stress, um, family stress gets magnified, um, physical stress because uh, typically this time of year is where um, we kind of hunker down and uh, the, what we eat changes, and it's harder to kind of maintain our physical health because really it's just. Our bodies are telling us to hibernate, so we we typically just kind of stay at home and um, nest. I don't know another word for it, but just kind of our, our activity tends to decrease because we don't have that many opportunities anymore. So what do people with just depression then experience? I mean, what are kind of some of the signs that maybe the depression's not under control? Signs that depression's not under control. Well, I always look for three things I think about. And I think when somebody's in the the throes of depression, it's hard to see outside of that. So this might be more for uh, people around you. Or if you're a family member of somebody who has depression, these are the things I think you should look for. And, and I'll try to keep it simple. Let's, let's look at three things that you should be aware of. Uh, one, helplessness. Two, hopelessness, and three, uh, worthlessness. So if somebody's feeling helpless, hopeless, and worthless, and they've been doing that for a while now, typically in my world, in the clinical social worker world, it's two weeks or more of you know nearly every day feeling like that, then that's uh, something that triggers an alarm that, hey, there's something happening here and we need to be aware and can maybe try to get help. Um, some people may have a mix of it, like, they feel helpless, like I don't have the money to provide the Christmas this year, but they don't feel worthless themselves. They're like, no, you know, I, I feel pretty good. I just know I can't do this. Um, and that's okay because that's just the reality of the situation. But I think those three things are what people who are depressed experience. And there are different levels of depression, and I think that's where – um, a primary care doc and instacare. I mean, they all have screening tools that they can use to help somebody determine maybe where they're at and then link them to resources and help from there. 
Do you think people who are severely depressed know that they're severely depressed, or, or what do you think is happening? Oh, man, great question uh, and a complicated answer, I think. So people who are severely depressed, uh, I, I it's hard to see the forest from the trees, you know. Uh, I, I don't know that they would know it. I think they are just in this place of uh, just pain and darkness, and it's hard to get out of that and see yourself uh, in this place and that um, – it's hard to ask for help in that time. I think people who have been depressed are typically have been there before. This isn't a new thing for a lot of them, especially if you're older, um, that some people might start to see it creeping in. They start to be aware like, oh, man, here it comes. It's coming back. I can feel it. And so that's a time that hopefully they have uh, they're mindful enough and aware enough that they can say, starting to come. I need to go talk to my doctor again, or I need to get some help again. Um, those that are in it, experiencing it, living it, I don't, I don't know that they could, because it's not something as simple as, um, I'm feeling this way. I just got to shake it off and walk it off and get up and have hope that it'll be a better day. It's, um, a physical change in, in your body's chemistry. And it's just, it requires far more resources and tools and help than what an average person could do. Right. I ask you that because many of us, we know we have our weaknesses. We know that there are things like, I know I need lights, so I put lights around my desk. We learn how to cope with those things that affect us that way. So I was just wondering, do people really know when they really are experiencing depression? I think if you've been diagnosed with severe clinical depression, um, I would say... My experience has been, no, just everything is awful. It sucks. It's pain. It's darkness. And you a lot of times don't see a way out of that. How do we help those around us once we do see these signs? What is the best way for us to go about helping those that we care about? Um, again, keeping in mind those three things, I think helpless, hopeless, and worthless. And... Um, Paying attention to patterns, I think, for people in our lives. You you know the people around you in your life, in your family, your friends best. Uh, oh well, you you know the patterns of their behavior, typically what they're like, what they do, and you can tell when that shifts. I think we can all tell when somebody's just not themselves, or they're not feeling well. And again, a weekend of I'm just staying home and in bed and in my pajamas and ordering takeout and. I'm not moving till work comes is okay. That's okay to have that. It's another thing if it's longer than two weeks. Again, that's kind of the key for um, depression in the clinical social work world. I just think in mental health as well. So if this has been a prolonged period of time where somebody's not bathing, they're not uh, wearing clean clothes, they're, they're not attending to their job, like they're not going to work, anymore um that they they just kind of are in this place of everything sucks life sucks i'm hopeless uh, i'm helpless nobody loves me i'm worthless then that's a time to maybe um that that should be a trigger and a warning for people to hey uh, this person's in trouble and they need some help now if somebody's 
doing a mix of that. Like they'll go to work, but it sucks, but they're still going. You know, they're they're still doing their laundry, but they're stressed. That's different entirely. Like that's just life and that's okay. And we all struggle around this time of year with that stuff anyway. Um, so that that that's all right, I think. Yeah, talk for a minute about what people would see in teenagers. Do teenagers experience more stress at, during the holidays? Ah, um, I, I wouldn't. I would say it's not um, a matter of uh, differences. It's a matter of degrees. Like we all have it. It's just to what degree do we have it? So I think teenagers have it as well because it's a time developmentally when their bodies are growing things are changing um right their their um, their bodies are 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 growing developing so you have peer pressure involved with kids um and i think it's a they they are more at risk anyway i mean we look at teen depression and suicide rates they they're growing they're huge right now and i do think kids who have who are bullied or, and especially around this time of year when they see other kids getting maybe gifts and presents and things that their families can't afford or that they can't have the newest clothes, the best tech, um, toys, cars, who knows what, that it puts an additional burden on kids as they, who are going through such a tough time developmentally anyway, that, and we as as we all know are our own worst enemies so they they get that internal dialogue going of of those three things man i just I, what's happening to me is it me is it my life my family we can't afford this and then you add the that culture of school and that pressure there yeah kids can really burden themselves through their own self-talk which really increases those rates i think too of it adds i should say to that depression and pain we've talked about this before but um i think it's still important parents often get concerned but are afraid to have the conversation with a teenager how does that conversation start uh i think by being simple direct and honest um, telling them that you're ask, telling them that you're worried about them. One of the things we do here on my team at Primary Children's, uh, when we have conversations that need to take place or, or talk about medical information with a family that may be difficult. So I'm just saying this along the lines of parents saying, "This is a hard conversation for me. It's difficult." We talk about um, a technique we use called uh, firing a warning shot. So you kind of let them know, hey, let's sit down and talk. Um, this, we, we, I'm worried about you. Let's sit down for a minute and talk. So it's just kind of firing that, okay, hey, this conversation is going to be hard maybe for me, maybe for you, but we need to have it. And then sit down and say, I, I've noticed these things going on in your life. Like typically I've seen you're, you're generally a pretty happy kid and you um, – you engage in these activities and you have your friends. But lately for the past couple of weeks, I've noticed that you're not talking to anybody, that you're isolating yourself more, that you haven't come out of your room, that um, things are just seem to be generally falling apart. And I'm worried 
what's happening? What's going on? Can you tell me? And then just shutting up and letting them talk or tell their story. And maybe they don't want to right then. Maybe um, they, they push you away. But I think consistency is the key here. So you can't just try to have it once then say, well, they didn't want to talk to me. So I tried uh, and uh, it's out of my hands. No, no, no. You kind of have to be persistent and you have to push through. And eventually there will come a point, hopefully the second or third time that kids will say, all right, fine. Here's what's happening. And they will talk to you. And it's at that point when they open that door that that opportunity comes to you as a parent that you can step inside that door and listen and hear what they have to say. And a tendency to uh, problem solve, which we all have, we hear an issue and we want to fix it. So that's an opportunity to just let them vent, talk, do what they got to do. Then at the end of it, um, come up with a plan. Um, I used to do this thing. I used to work in homeless health care for a number of years. And uh, I used to have this um, theme that I used to do with the guys I worked with. We called it unhappy hour, where for the first, you know, 40 minutes, 45 minutes or so, they could vent, complain, whatever they wanted to do, and I would just listen. But then the last 15, 20 minutes, we would come up with a plan. So sometimes, and it got to a point where they would come in and say, all right, uh, unhappy hour, I need unhappy hour. I'm here for unhappy hour. And I'd say, okay, great. What do you got? And then they would talk. So if you can establish some of these routines in your family throughout the year, that when the holiday time comes, hopefully that pattern's in place, that's already a practice you guys have as a family, and those conversations can flow pretty natural. Um, if this is your first time doing it and it's at holiday time, keep the practice up. Keep touching base. Keep asking questions. And the key is to not assign judgment to those things that your teens talk about. Uh, a member of my team talks about with her teenage sons when they would come home and talk about what happened at school. She would purposely have to kind of be washing dishes or doing something so that she could hide her facial expressions about what they were saying um, because she would be like, oh, man, I can't believe this. But she didn't want to show them because sometimes uh, our kids will, I don't know, say things to purposely shock parents or, or their culture and lives now terrify us because we are a completely different generation that we go, holy cow, we didn't have any of these problems or pressures. Um, but to just be able to provide that space for kids to talk to. And then once a kid says, yeah, I'm not, I'm having these problems, these struggles, I'm not myself, I don't know what's going on, I'm having these thoughts. Maybe their thoughts about hurting myself or others. Uh, then that's a time that we need to take it to the next step and say, okay, well now let's make a plan. We'll, we'll go see the doctor. And I think having a plan in place and following through on that plan is so important because it provides that consistency. It provides that trust. I think that kids know, okay, um, I can, I can trust my mom, my dad, my uncle, my grand, whoever, um, that if I tell them this and they say they're going to do X about it, that they will follow through and do it. And I think that's, um, very powerful and it's a key to a strong family relationship. 
Would the same principles hold true for adults that you just mentioned for teenagers as far as a way to approach an adult and even to make a plan? Yeah. Yes, I would. Um, I think as adults, as we get older, one of the enemies of of our minds is isolation and loneliness. Um, when we when we think we're by ourselves or that we don't have anybody in our lives or that nobody cares about us, that's when um, the thoughts start coming and we start burdening ourselves more and more with ah, just, maybe I'm just not worth it. Maybe uh, nobody cares about me and what am I doing here? And I don't I don't have any family. I don't have any friends. And so it's also uh, so if people could say, hey, I see you. I notice you. I I notice this is happening or that things aren't going well. And again, somebody might be like, no, I'm okay, thanks. I'm fine, thanks. It's that, well, it doesn't seem fine to me. Let's talk for a minute. Like, what's tell me what's going on. And allowing people to vent and voice and talk. And I think one of the most powerful things we can do for each other is to listen to each other. Not try to solve it, fix it for many people, but to listen and just say, man, that's hard. That that sounds awful. And it's at that point afterwards, again, at the end of it all, like, well, I could see I could we could help with these things or we could I could do these things for you. Or what are you willing to do? Um, we can I'm willing to go with you right now to an Instacare or to an ER if you feel it is that um, desperate and urgent to help somebody to do. So if it's not as urgent, would you recommend a primary care physician or where would where would someone start? Yeah, making an appointment with your primary care doc. And again, if somebody doesn't have that or if they don't have the ability to go to a primary care physician, um, there's also that uh, the crisis line, the national crisis line. I think people can Google and look up. I don't have that number available to me right now, but um, Intermountain has that Safe UT app. Um, that I think people could download and have on their phone. Um, if, But I think a primary care doc or any kind of um, health facility is a great way to start because they have the screening tools and the ability and the people to sit down and, and kind of go more in depth with you on those situations and scenarios and see what's happening in your life right now and maybe how they can help. Before we finish here, um, just are we getting better at seeking help or are there still the myths about depression and the stigma? Yeah, uh, I would say it depends. I think it's a mixed bag. I think this um, age of information uh, has its benefits and its burdens. And I think it's made people more aware of mental health issues. I I see the trends in like, uh, celebrities and people who are coming out and saying, I've struggled with depression. I have this diagnosis. I've been battling. Here's what I've done um, has been a good thing. So I think the information's getting out there. I think awareness is increasing, but it's still um, a culture, I think, of, of, and especially here in Utah, and this is just my opinion, of that we, that can do that stick to itiveness that we're tough we're strong we can we can pick ourselves up we can do this we shouldn't be feeling this way um kind of just that pioneering spirit that we we're tough we can endure and push through 
And people beat themselves up with that. So while I think the information and awareness is increasing and people know there's still kind of a bit of this self-stigma of I shouldn't be feeling this way. Something's wrong with me. I don't know what's going on. I should smile and feel better, but I just can't. I don't know what's happening. And they don't want to tell anybody for fear of what it may do to a relationship or how people perceive them or view them. And it's a tough place to be. And I think if people can have just some, for those who feel like that, have a little grace for themselves to say, it's okay. I need a little help. And if the first person you talk to or the first therapist you talk to, it doesn't fit, doesn't feel good, it didn't go well, find another one. Keep keep flipping through until you find – I say flipping through. I'm old enough to know, remember yellow pages and flipping through the book. So uh, keep looking on Google or, the, or wherever and just say, uh, I'm going to find somebody that fits with me and it's going to work. The doctors can help manage – medication pieces of things and help keep you on track that way but it's a two-way street three-way street i guess i should say medications therapy and then kind of your own practice of of mindfulness and being aware of what's happening to you and where you're at and not being afraid to ask for help because it's it's okay um i i've learned this little nugget of wisdom that's been hard for me to incorporate, but I've been trying in my life. Um, I had a clinical supervisor tell me many years ago, he said, do you help people? Do you like helping people? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm a social worker. This is what I do. Uh, I help neighbors, friends. Fam-. I'm like, it feel, feels good. And he said, right. So when you don't let other people help you, you're denying them that feeling. And I thought about that. Because it's right up my, I mean, my family culture is one of pride as well. Like, I can do this. I don't need help. But that idea of like, oh, man, I'm people who offer help want to help. And I say, no, thank you. I'm denying them that feeling of like walking away after you've served somebody, after you've helped somebody. And you're like, that felt good to let people help you, to let people serve and be kind. Um, and it's okay. It's okay. Orly, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.